Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Alex Levin from Regal.io. Alex and I are going to talk about the lack of sophistication within business-to-business sales. He comes from a business-to-consumer background, and we're going to explore what we can learn from the B2C market. We're also going to really focus on one of my big bugbears, which is selfish selling. The idea that somehow squeezing a customer into your shitty sales process is good for them. The problem is buyers don't care about your sales process. They don't care about your quota and they don't care about the fact you're going to lose your job. What they do care about is can you help them solve their problem? Can you meet some unmet need? So we're going to dig really deep and I hope it's going to be very uncomfortable for you all. Thanks. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Would you give us 60 to 90 seconds on your history so people understand your background, please? Of course. So my background is mostly as a B2C marketer. Just previous to this, I ran growth and marketing at a home services company called Angie that owns Angie's List and Home Advisor and a number of the home services brands in the United States. I was actually the largest home services provider in the world today. And my co-founder and I were there from about a million dollars in revenue through over a billion dollars in revenue. So saw a lot of different parts of scale. And you found um, them? No, we were not the founders of that company, but we worked there for quite a few years. And I'd say the other thing about my experience that's interesting is I have for a little bit worked in a family-owned business where we had to do some smalls at a very uh, sorry sales at a very small scale, and so I've seen what that looks like, uh, which can be interesting for folks. And then. Even at Angie, we had a B2B business and I ran a big B2B sale sort of there that was really an enterprise sale. And so used to that, my current company, Regal, comes out of my experience at Angie, where we actually saw that in a lot of these businesses that are coming online today, it's critical to have a conversation with your customer. And so in industries like education, healthcare, uh, insurance, lending, local services, it's actually not an industry where you want to remove the personal touch completely. You just want to find the right moments in that customer's onboarding online to actually still have a conversation with them. And so we founded Regal to be the software for those B2C sales teams. If you ask our customers, I'd say what we're best known for two things. One, uh, we have special relationships with the cell carriers in the United States to offer branded calls on cell phones. So you know who it is who's calling and it's not a random number. And two, we've built what we call a journey builder, which allows our clients to drag and drop, change the experience that their customers are getting. So basically think of Goosebumps, choose your own adventure. Depending on what a customer does, you can send different texts and calls and personalize the messages, which lead to higher engagement and higher sales. Make sure to remind me to introduce you to Ted Box over at Kinetazine. I think that could be a really interesting tie-in there if I've uh, understood you correctly. So help me understand this. I hear a lot particularly in the SaaS world, uh, around this PLG, product-led growth. And I've got real issues with it. And I know that uh, you're concerned about it too. First of all, what is PLG for the audience, if they're not familiar? About five or six years ago, an investor at OpenView started talking about product-led growth. And it's only now caught on five years later. So we talked to him, it's very funny. For years, he felt like he was screaming in the wind, but now everybody's talking about it. So I just say, you know, one thing to remember, if you feel like you're screaming in the wind, don't worry. If you're right, eventually people come to your side. So keep screaming. Particularly, it's the belief that there's the opportunity to allow customers to try the product and use the product without being gated by a sales team. And a lot of this comes from, you know, really the experience that we've had in B2C, 
where you can go online and buy a product and try something without a salesperson. And the consumer today, the business user today, expects the ability to do that for a lot of products. There have been some notable successes, you know, from things like Dropbox to Loom, where they've just exploded by using really traditional B2C methods instead of B2B methods and not gating with sales. I think, you know, just to go into it a little bit, the, the challenge is a lot of these products are higher price point, are more complicated to use, require help to have proper adoption. And so if you don't have any sales in the process, there is still a pretty high churn rate compared to traditional uh, products that are sold via sales. So, well, you know, it's not all, uh, you know, rainbows and sprinkles. The the advantage of product-led growth, as far as I understand it, is you uh, work with your customers to help them improve the product. So you create a product so good that you don't need a sales force. The fundamental flaw in that is if you've got a sales team and you've got a great product, how much more business could you generate? But more importantly, how much churn can you eliminate? Because we know that where no salesperson is involved, it does increase churn. And uh, at a more expensive end of the market, that churn rate is as high as 40%. Yeah, now, yeah. That means yeah. That you lose nearly all of your customers every two years that you have to replace, which means you have to stand still just to replace them. And then you have yeah. to... I think, I think one thing I would remind sort of everybody on churn is that what's important on churn is not the steepness of the churn curve at the beginning, but the steepness of the churn curve over time. So if you lose 40% of customers, but then your churn goes to zero, you're fine. Yes, you have to add customers, but it's not a big deal. If you lose you know, every year 40% continuously, then you have a disaster of a business and you're never going to be able to recover. So actually, like, it's not the initial churn that matters as much as like, does it continue? If you're in a business where the churn stops, you'll be okay in the end. That's a really interesting point. Thank you for that. And the other thing I'd say on PLG, like I think you know, if we're going to go there, the first thing everybody should do is draw themselves a two by two matrix and say, what is the cost of my product? So you know, is it a hundred dollars a month, thousand dollars a month, ten thousand dollars a month? What is the cost? And what is the complexity to the sale? You know, is it a transactional sale or is it really a difficult thing that I'm selling to them? If you find yourself selling uh, in a situation where you are a very low cost product that's very complex sale, you should probably close your business. You're in a bad spot. You know, PLG works very well with a very transactional sale or low complexity sale, especially if it's a low price point and you can't do a traditional sales process. If you're in a situation where it's a low complexity sale and a higher price point, I think you have a lot of opportunity to actually combine PLG with a traditional sales assist or sales process. And so what I hope people take away from this is that the answer is not necessarily PLG. The answer is finding the right go-to-market motion for you know, your type of product. And then potentially in some quadrants of that two by two, you should be doing both PLG and traditional sales. What I usually say to people is, you know, if they're using PLG today and they're being successful, that's great. They have a product that sells on its own. Imagine how successful they could be if they also had sales. Like it only get better, not worse. Interesting. Okay. So let's uh, have a little bit of a, a dig into selling, sales leadership, and the overall culture of sales. I'm constantly beating the drum around the concept of buyer safety and uh, making sure that every aspect of what we do is built from the customer out. But so many sales organizations have created their sales motion entirely to serve themselves, not the customer. And 
it's fine and dandy if you've got 2,000 salespeople and you can afford to burn through most of them and to have most of them speak to customers for three minutes a day because you've got free money and lots of it. Now the market's a lot tighter. VC are now saying you've got to make a profit in many cases uh, and revenue at any cost is no longer acceptable. And we've got a bunch of leaders who for the last 12 years, 14 years, have basically been sucking on the teat of cheap money from investors. They could take three years to break even on any deal because they never intended to stay around. And what they intended to do was just flip it, put a lick of paint and redecorate bits and pieces of the house and then sell it for another hundred grand. That's the way most of these businesses operate and they're not sustainable. My question is this, given that we know and the correction this year in their stock price is indicative that most people see zero value in these businesses or next to nothing because they've seen a 90% drop in their share price. Okay, that's indicative that people don't think your stuff is any fucking good. Okay, and your business doesn't have legs. So why is it that leadership persists in trying to force the customer into a selling process instead of adapt their process to the buyer? And why is it that we've created the motions and the structure internally to create as much friction as humanly possible for the customer. So at every possible juncture, they drop off. Why yeah. do we keep doing this? Yeah, no, I think you bring up a lot of, a lot of good points. So uh, I'll object to one thing and then we can dig into sort of the, you know, how you should build a modern sales motion. I don't believe that the drop in share prices due to the companies being worthless. I think most of the drop in share price in public SaaS companies is due to the change in interest rates. In a world where interest rates are zero, you bring you know the full future revenue to today and companies are worth more. In a world where interest rates are higher, the net present value of that dollar is much lower. So well, I help me understand that. this then. How is it in the last seven years, we've seen this explosion in MarTech sales, tech sales enablement, data, uh, every form of growth consultancy, outsource lead gen, SEO website, everything. And over those seven years, quota attainment has halved. Tell me yeah. why that is the case. I, so I think that there's a, so just start with, I don't think the share price today is reflective of the value of these companies. And I think actually in a lot of cases, investors are underestimating the potential size of these companies. A great example being Braze. The future of email marketing is tools like Braze and Iterable, who's still private. They are going to take over 100% of the market from the old players like uh, Salesforce, Marketing Cloud, uh, or responses. And I think the, it is not currently priced correctly because investors don't understand how much better the current tool set and Brazen Interval is than the old tool set because they haven't used it. But it truly is just a, a they're priced incorrectly. So your point, I think, is a different one, which is within those companies, there's been a trend where the SaaS companies have loaded enormous amounts of cost. And I think largely it's due to how predictable the revenue is in SaaS. Because it's so predictable, the financial engineering teams at these companies, if you want to call them that, have said, well, actually, we should be willing to pay you know, $3 today for every $1 of revenue we get this year because we know it's going to stay six years overall and we still get a two times payback over six years. And if the market's big enough, we should still grow. And that logic has led to a lot 
a lot of bad places where companies are pumping in dollars for what they claim to be future revenues. The challenge is that if you're wrong, it's six years before you know you're wrong, and now you've just blown a huge hole in your PL and you're not actually at the revenue place where you wanna be. So there definitely are a lot of cautionary tales where they're overspending on sales and marketing get to there. I think there's also another thing that's causing it, which we were talking about a bit in the prep, which is because it's become such a predictable revenue stream, I've noticed coming from sort of the outside into this, you know, for the first time that a lot of teams build basically an assembly line. And so they have, you know, lots of people that touch the customer and each role does a specific thing. It makes it easier to hire for the role, easier to measure that role, easier to know what that person's doing. There's a lot of reasons why companies do that. But it, what it's also doing is it's creating a terrible experience for the customer because they have to interact with eight people and it's creating much higher costs because you have eight people doing the job instead of what used to be one. And so, you know, you now have an implementation person, a transition person, a CSM, an account manager, a support person, a retention person who's then responsible for the renewal. And all these are the just post-sale. I'm not even talking about the pre-sale people that are interacting with you. So I think that's sort of what's ended us in this place. It's hard to know what the right answer is because there are companies where the growth truly is huge or the potential growth is huge and spending $3 today for $1 this year is the right decision. And then they're going to be a lot where it's not, but it's in advance. It's hard to know because you have to wait six years to see if that pays back. Again, I, I accept that um, I, I'm no economist. So I'll take it on advisement that you're correct with regard to at least part of the share price. My question then is this, the customer's experience is often terrible because we've divided the functions up, unnecessary and unhelpful friction, because every time we lob them over the wall from marketing to SDR, SDR to AE, AE to CS, they have to start all over again. It's like phoning the bank and having to give you details 70 yeah. times. Well, um, what really baffles me is why... That persists. When Adam Smith wrote Wealth of Nations, at the end of the book, he says very clearly, don't do division of labor because it's really bad and it dehumanizes and yeah. it's not good for business or people. But none of the alphas got to the end of the book. And so they got fixated on the idea of turning sales into a factory. But selling is a relationship occupation. And I hear so many gurus talking about, well, it's not about the relationship, it's about the transaction, it's a numbers game. And I'm not seeing that. The evidence in the real world is it's not a numbers game, it's a relationship game. Yeah. Best salespeople are um, very judicious and uh, are ruthless in what they say no to. Their obsession is with spending more time with actual living, breathing human beings and not becoming technicians that are very good at spamming people. Now, there are 1.2 quadrillion emails delivered every year, and most of those get nothing. You know, you've got 0.3% response rate. That's a lot of people whose inboxes, mine, for example, gets between two and 500 emails a day that weren't asked for and are irrelevant. Now, in a world where People are being deafened by the noise of everybody else. How do you get heard? Be really interested as a, from your B2B marketing perspective. How do you get heard by saying less? 
Yeah, no, so I love the point. So first, I have to give a shout out to my co-founder and I are uh, angel investors in a company called Gated. And their premise is exactly what you've said, that we are getting overwhelmed with this sort of email. And so what their product allows you to do is filter out all email from people that you've not been in contact with before. And it sends them a response automatically. It basically says, look, I'm not going to look at this. If you actually know me, and this was an error, click here, and it lets it through. If you don't know me and you want me to look at it, uh, donate to my charity of choice. And what's interesting is that when people actually don't know you and they click that button to donate charity of choice, the user like me actually is much more likely to read it because you yeah. know it's a real human being that cares about it and cares about the relationship and the interaction. And then, you know, it's more likely for the person to, to right. respond. So that's just a, a side note is I would try gated. I think it is a, a fascinating new model for email to the B2B motion. I think there are like in the space that we work in, you know, yes, we work particularly with, with uh, sales teams, but more broadly, we, we work against or work with contact center software. So in that contact center software market in the United States, there's probably 400 different contact center softwares. And so it's a very crowded market and it's very easy to get lost in, you know, the world of all of those. And so coming from our background, one of the things we understood was very important to stake out what we are and what we're not and, you know, what we stand for and what we're against. And so we're very clear that, you know, we work for outbound sales teams. You know, we are for having a personal touch in this digital experience. We are against the AI bots that do all this stuff. And, you know, within that, we then went to click down and said, look, we're going to create marketing that speaks more irreverently, that tries to break down the fourth wall, that tries to speak truth to power, because we want to make sure that people know our opinion. I think an example of a company that did this much better than us and is now much bigger is Gong, where from the beginning, Gong went to people and said, look, you think you know what's happening in your sales process. You don't. You're completely wrong. Let me tell you like how you're going to figure out what's going on in your sales process using this tool. So Gong, in effect, is not, has, has not reinvented anything. They were reporting tools in the past or transcription tools in the past, but Gong was the first to really take off on the B2B side because of their marketing, because of their positioning. I'd say Attentive is a similar case on the SMS marketing side. There have been SMS marketing companies for a long time, but using their go-to-market motion, using their marketing, they were able to break through and make sure people understood why SMS marketing was so important. So I think definitely a huge part of this process is just is marketing, let's say. Within the sales motion, then I think our uh our sort of theme internally is you have to make your first 500 customers successful. It doesn't matter what it takes. Efficiency is not what matters for your first 500 customers. So you need to make sure that you're sitting down with them in a consultative way, understanding their business, helping them really succeed, whether it's with your product or with something else. But if you're invested in their success and you listen to the things they're asking you to do, you're going to get out of it quite a lot. And so, you know, from very early days, like we sat with our customers, we made sure that everyone who worked with us understood that we cared about the customer first. And in our case, it's helping them drive more revenue from their current traffic. So that's the place we work in the funnel, right? We're not top of funnel. We help them drive more conversions from their current traffic. And where we're successful at that, I think our customers are then successful, which then drives a, a nice loop where they refer us to other people, they use us more, so on and so forth. So I'd say, if you do that for your first 500 customers, history will write itself. If you don't, and you try to optimize for efficiency or optimize for internal goals rather than your customer goals, you're going to have trouble. Listen to what Alex has just said. It's very important that you understand that your customers buy for their reasons, not your reasons. They don't care about your quota, your target, the pressure you're under. 
what they pay for are outcomes. They don't buy your software. They don't buy your product. No one in the history of humanity has ever bought my training or coaching because they want training or coaching. They want their results to improve. And until we start to really understand what the job to be done is that the customer is trying to accomplish and the environment, the context in which they have to operate, we're always going to be struggling to make sales. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I, we've been very lucky to get advice from a lot of very experienced go-to-market leaders. Again, as we're not from this world as much, you know, it's been very helpful to get that advice. And so if I can, I try to pass it along. So one of the senior leaders that, you know, previously was a CRO at a couple of B2B companies um, in related spaces, you know, really early on emphasized to us that everybody from the BDR onwards really needs to stop talking about Regal. They need to talk about the customer. They need to talk about what is going on with the customer. What are their challenges? What are we seeing? You know, and that then leads in a conversation about what they need. Uh, historically, I'd say HubSpot was among the best at this. HubSpot would would really force customers to to relive the pain and agony of the things that they were doing currently before selling them inbound marketing was the original product, and now they've expanded. And so I think they were phenomenal at this. But we've tried to teach our teams about that as well and make sure that every time we're approaching a customer, it's about what they're doing, not about what we're doing. Really important. Well, that then brings us to the next really important question. What makes a great salesperson today? Yeah. So again, we were talking about a bit in prep. I think it's it's really hard for me to know. There are the traditional things that people look for in a salesperson, you know, what they look like, what they sound like, but how they act, you know, how they strut around the room, perhaps. But honestly, like that's not what makes a great salesperson. And so I think we we try to be more open-minded about it, you know, and try to not, you know, rely on those preconceived notions, but instead look at, you know, studies from other companies around what are the attributes that really make them successful. Look at in our situation, what is making somebody successful? If I were gonna like pick out one thing from everything that I've seen in terms of academic studies and within our company, the people who have who are inquisitive and who are interested in companies. And when I say interested, I don't mean that you think it's interesting. I just said that it's interest that you're interested. So, you know, it means that even if it's not the most interesting business you're working with, you're fascinated by what they're doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it. And it, that sort of infectious enthusiasm uh, is, is very clear to the customer because then, you know, even if you go, you know what, I, based on what I've learned, we're not the right company. Here's somebody else who is the right company to serve you in this you know, you're doing something that's good for them. You're not just pushing your product down their throat. So I'd say that's the number one thing that I look for these days, especially in sort of our, we're upper mid market, sort of in a 50 to 100K average contract value. I think it's different in different sales motions. Okay. And um, I mean, uh, Joe Mullings is one of my inspirations when it comes to hiring. He's uh, got, runs a recruitment company called the Mullings Group. And his recruiters typically build 300 to 500% more than the industry average. And his recruitment advice is recruit for high on trust, average on competence. If they're not high on trust, you can't train that. You can train competence and their skills. So hire for what you cannot train. And the most important yeah. things are attitudes, beliefs, and values, their ability to adapt. But most important of all, the single biggest driver, in my experience, is habit. What do they do habitually before they arrive? Are they organized? Are they planners? Do they have a systematic approach to how they prospect? Do they calendar block? 
And these are habits I'm looking for in a salesperson. Bad habits I'm looking for are things like excuse making, avoidance, blaming, because those are habits and I'll see them time and time again. That's the sort of thing I don't want in my team because yeah. I want people who take ownership People who yeah, are right. I mean, the only other one I'd add, like very early days. So I think, you know, to your point, the consistency over motivation is an important one. The other one I'd add is, is grit. You know, I think you do find just people who have perseverance and have the desire and will figure it out. And so like, that's something that's critical in sales roles, because it is a very hard career. You're going to be told no a lot. So you have to have that perseverance or grit. I think you definitely have to have tenacity, but the best sellers that I know recognize that their job is to learn and not make the same mistake twice because that's a decision yeah and they are religious about practicing the fundamentals routinely they routinely will go into role play and they're very comfortable doing practice because they understand turning up and being prepared is their job i interviewed a fellow called jack shamas years ago um, for the podcast. And he was a CFO for Pan Am, Charles Schwab, Standard and Pause. And he said something really, really interesting. He said, I look forward to when salespeople come to me because I'm going to learn something. And if they haven't given me that impression within two minutes, it's over. Now, in that first two minutes, what most salespeople are doing is they're spending their time trying to position their company and their product. Customer doesn't care about that. They want their outcomes to improve. They've got the job to be done. What advice would you give to a newly minted manager who's come from a sales role and now they actually have the opportunity to do things differently? Because one of my big bugbears, and I've seen this in many organizations, is that the manager then becomes an accomplice and perpetrates the shit that went before. So what advice would you give to a new manager who's just starting out for the first time in a role uh, where they're working with a team that may be their peers and they've just been promoted? Yeah, no, very challenging for sure. I guess at Regal, we believe strongly in the quality of work that you do. So somewhat like I would say, just start with, you know, having very high quality behaviors. So, you know, if you're now in a management role, make sure that you are actually spending time with each individual rep so they understand their goal. Make sure you're spending time with them so you understand their goals. Go and listen to every call and start giving them, in, you know, direct feedback about what's going well and what's going badly. So don't start with a strategy statement about, you know, how you want to change everything. Start with the tactical things that you know to be true. And then what will happen is a month later, two months later, you look back and you realize you created a strategy. And by watching what's happening, you started to understand where, where you need to spend more time, where you need to spend less time. So I'd say the number one mistake people make is they come in with some preconception about what needs to happen and start implementing that before they've actually seen the reality or started just doing good work day to day. The other thing, you know, I think to your point is resetting and like going and meeting your peers and trying to find like the people who are really the best salespeople in your industry. So you can sort of reset in your head, what is benchmark for A, for great? I think too many sales teams get into the habit of sort of their way of doing things, which may not be the best way of doing things. And so if you can start, see, start seeing how your peers are doing things, I think you'll get a better benchmark so that you can then bring that back and change things. But there isn't, in my mind, like one right way to do it. I think every single organization, every go-to-market motion is different. And so what we try to teach people is 
don't um, make the mistake of believing because you did something in the past a certain way that that's how you should the end result of your current way right if you have an opinion or an experience from the past that's a great starting point that's fine it's a starting point but then iterate on it to find the right solution for your current situation. Don't assume that because you did something in the past and it worked, that it should be the right solution at your new company. Okay, I'm going to build on that as well. You need to look at your processes, ones that you use every day, probably every three months, and at least once a year for every process in the business. And the reason for this is you don't want to be left holding the horses. Back in 1970, the British Army commissioned a study of um, the artillery. And what they discovered was that the soldiers would carry the shell to the back of the gun. One of them would open it, shove, they'd shove the shell in, close it, and then one would stand to attention facing backwards. And the other one would march eight paces, turn around, put their right hand behind their back, lift their left arm up, and then nod. And the other one would then pull the cord and the gun would fire. And so they asked the soldiers why they were firing that way. And he said, well, that's why we were trained to train, uh, trained to fire the guns, sir. And that's why we fire the guns in this man's army, sir. And uh, who trained you? The gunnery sergeant. Gunny, why do you train them that way? That's why I was trained to train them. That's why we train them. That's why we fire the guns in this man's army, sir. After a couple of weeks, he's at the um, pub outside the barracks. And, and a World War I veteran comes in. He says, you got any idea why they're doing this? He said, yeah, they're holding the horses. Now, bear in mind, for 50 years, they hadn't had horse-drawn artillery in the field. Mm. They were still holding an imaginary horse. So, Alex, tell me something. I think one of the big uh, blind spots salespeople have is that they view the world through this filter of pink spectacles and happy ears, and then they come back and report back what they think happened as opposed to what really happened. What advice would you give to a salesperson in terms of preparation before they go in to meet a customer? So let's start with that. Yeah, I, so some of it is very simple. Again, is you know make sure before you meet a customer, you go to their website, you try to go and buy the product, you know, go to the reviews and read the reviews, particularly filter for what are the worst reviews that they have, not the best, and see why are they getting bad reviews. You know, that should help you, you know, make those statements of, you know, I went to your site and this is what happened. Is it what you would expect? Or, you know, when I looked at your reviews and I saw the bad ones, this is what's leading to the bad ones and help you pull out from the customer really what's happening. So I'd say, you know, that's always a good starting point. Okay. So when you've come out of the sale, What's, what are the motions the best salespeople in your experience go through uh, afterwards? After a sort of a conversation? After a first meeting. Uh, so I'll give you my, like, my sort of list of things that I think Please. are very important. So there's very few things as a salesperson that you have control over. But you should take the things you have control over and do them insanely well. So as an example, when the call is over, best in class is to be responding to them in email within 30 minutes. And if you don't do it within the same day, you're lost. So make sure that you know, you're taking the time within that day for sure, and ideally right afterwards, and writing them a thoughtful email about what happened. If you can, take the time to find the resources that are going to help them be successful based on the conversation you had and add those into the email. So that's something you completely have control over, so don't lose. You know, second, I think... There's a lot of control over, you know, what the cadence is in the sales process. And so, you know, ideally before you're leaving the sales 
you know, call itself, but certainly like in that email, you should be setting out what's going to happen. You know, is it going to take a few weeks of sort of review? Are you going to have to work with their legal team? Like you as a salesperson have done this a number of times. You should understand also what their process is internally and together come up with a plan that you're going to hold each other to. And that way, you know, if two weeks later you have not yet reached that next step in that joint plan, when you're reaching back out to them, you're not just saying, hey, reminder, not sure if you remember me, which makes you seem like a product that's not important because you're saying that they don't remember you. You're saying instead, hey, we set out this plan. Here's the thing that we agreed to do. Have you done it by this date or is there something that's blocking you from doing it? It's a completely different framing. So, it, you know, for me, writing that first thing right away, setting the plan and then stopping all these reminder emails, bumping this up email, don't do that. Just makes you seem uh, hopeless. Instead, engage them on the plan of how you're going to work things through. And don't be afraid to say, look, it looks like you're, we're not on this plan anymore. So we're not going to be doing it this quarter. I'm going to go work on something else now. And if you want to reach back out to me, great. Don't be afraid to walk away. That's perfectly fine. Uh, no question. If you can't say no as a salesperson, your career is very short or very uncomfortable because you'll spend most of your time chasing non-prospects. Okay. I'm interested in metrics now. Let's talk about some of the metrics. What are the, uh, the the correct metrics that sales leaders should be focusing their salespeople on? Because uh, I, I was talking to uh, one of my clients yesterday, and they, it was about KPIs. And there was something like 40 on the page. How on earth is a salesperson meant to track all of that? What, what should they be tracking? You know, you were telling a story about military that made me think of one. So first, I'll tell one story about data that I think is an important one, and then we can go into specific metrics. So there's a famous story uh, from World Wars where, I suppose it's World War II, where planes are coming back with lots of holes in them. Yeah. And they hired a statistician to say, where should we you know, reinforce the plane? And most statisticians were saying, well, everywhere you see holes are the places we should be reinforcing them. And finally, a statistician who was a little bit smarter came back and said, well, actually, you're wrong. If they're coming back with holes in that place, it means that that's a place in the plane that can sustain damage. We should be reinforcing the parts of the plane that are coming back without damage, Absolutely. because those are clearly the places where they're getting shot when they're going down. And so I guess uh, my only point is be very careful with data. You know, if you're not reading it correctly, you can end up in a very bad situation. So luckily they had a smart statistician in that case. That said, I'd say the number one thing I think sales leaders should be looking at is a revenue waterfall, or I guess in this case, pipeline waterfall on a daily or weekly basis. So they should be getting an email or you know have a chart every day and every week that's showing them how much added pipeline there was, how much you know pipeline decreased in value, increased in value, moved out a period or was closed or won for that matter. And they should be just getting that on every periodic basis. That is the lifeblood of a sales team. You know, if you're seeing that moving down week over week, that's a bad sign. If you're seeing that moving up, it's a good sign. So that is the thing that, you know, every sales leader should look at and understand very well. I think as a, uh, as a rule of thumb, the other thing that I've come to learn is if each salesperson has about eight activities a week, eight to 10, something like that, they're in good shape. So if they have, you know, between demos and discovery calls and close calls and whatever else, sort of eight conversations with customers over a week or 10, they're kind of okay. You know, if they're going below that, it's unlikely that they're going to be successful. Each business obviously has to do the math themselves. And this is a very sort of, you know, bulk rule of thumb, but it, you know, it helps to make sure that they're, they're doing the right number of activities. 
before you start sort of adding salespeople. I think too many companies have this misunderstanding that if you add a salesperson, it's going to increase your revenue. It's not necessarily. You have to have everything set up so that that salesperson can be successful. If you just add a salesperson and they're at 50% of quota, that's not good for anybody. And again, this comes back to what managers' roles are. Managers have two functions and two functions only. Everything else is just masturbatory. It's completely distracting. You hire the best people. And the reason you hire the best people is if you hire well, you eliminate 95% of your management problems. No one wants to hire someone to fill a role. They want to hire someone who will succeed in the role, improve over time, and stay. And so if you don't then create the second uh, condition, which is the conditions where your highly talented people can thrive and do their best work, that's what the manager's job is, is to create those conditions. Now, one of the things you touched on, which I was delighted about, is the intense and consistent level of coaching and coaching in the moment on the basis of what you actually see. I think far too few salespeople have any real coaching. I remember there was a study done in 2021 and 83% of managers were convinced they were coaching but only 18% of their salespeople believe they were receiving it. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. So I fundamentally believe that the middle management layer is the most untapped resource within the business and potentially could be the single greatest catalyst for driving transformational sustained change. Yeah. The middle managers, their average uh, route to, senior, uh, to management is a tap on the shoulder as they're scoffing their cereal in the morning and they're told, you're the boss now, off you go. So your thoughts around um, the management of sales generally, I'd be curious about your experience of that. What yeah, it's, you- a, it's, a hard, it's a hard one. I mean, first of all, you can make much more money as a good individual salesperson than as a manager. Yeah. So for a lot of salespeople, management is not the right track. You know, they were part of the reason they went into sales is they were motivated by money. And so they should continue to develop as an individual contributor and continue to move up in that rung. Management is a very different motion than the typical sales motion. A lot of salespeople are not good at it. And so I think we just need to be very honest internally with folks that that is not the track for everybody because otherwise people will end up in the wrong place. I think for people that do end up on a management track, there's very different skill sets at very different levels. So I think if you're the first tier manager, it's a lot of stuff we're talking about understanding some base dashboards that you've been given, doing a ton of like listening to your reps, coaching, being very clear with your reps on goals, those sorts of things. Think if you get to a director level, all of a sudden you're going to be asked to do analysis. And that's something you've never learned as a salesperson, probably. You know, how does Excel work? How does PowerPoint work? You know, how do I present to senior executives? How do I manage up? You know, in addition to just doing the analysis, you need to know those other things to be able to package it in a way that people are going to understand it. I think that's an entire new skill set that a lot of people have trouble with as they move into that director level role. And then finally, if you move into a VP level role, now you're probably in a place where you're forecasting and you're committing and you're talking to either the senior executives or even the board. And there's another set of management around expectations that you haven't done before that, again, you've been not been trained for. So I think sales is, is a particular career where the things that are going to make you good as an individual contributor have nothing to do what's going to make you good as you go up that stack. And it's really quite hard. When you're an individual contributor, your job is to deliver the result for yourself. And when you're a manager, your job is to help other people achieve 
the result. And you you own the team target, but you're not responsible for doing the team target. And I think one of the big uh, mistakes I see happen, I understand why small businesses do this, because they have to cut their cloth according to their means. Um, but larger organizations where you have player managers, have you ever seen that works really successfully and consistently? Yeah, so we we have a very actually strict belief that all managers should be doing about 20% individual contributor work and 80%, you know, management. And so even at a very senior level, like the execs, like we expect them to be doing individual contributor work. If they're not doing the work of the people they're managing, there's no way they can do a good job managing them because they won't have enough appreciation of what is actually required for that work. So it's an unusual perspective for sure, but it's something we believe strongly in. Same is true in sales. I would expect even senior salespeople to be going and selling to make sure they understand what's actually happening in the market so that when a salesperson comes to them and says something, they're not reacting oh, with a, you know sort of unfair, undue opinions. They're reacting from a place where they've actually been selling themselves. Hmm. Okay, I, I, I personally disagree. Um, I, I think that a manager's job is to get the best out there or help the, the people get the best out of themselves. And the leader's job is to create the conditions for the entire organization to thrive. And if they're focused on carrying a target and they know that at least part of their compensation is tied to that, they'll focus on that instead of focusing on coaching. Yeah, so I'm not making a comment on compensation. Typically, we don't lend compensation to the individual contributor work they're doing. The reason we still ask them to do it is two things. So one, what the point I made around, you can't manage somebody if you don't know the work they're doing because you're going to give them bad feedback. And the best way to know their work they're doing is for you to do it yourself. But the other is, especially in a startup cycle where things are changing fast, the way to succeed is to shorten the feedback loop, hmm. right? Companies that move too quickly to process or to management layers find that they lengthen the feedback loop. And so it's the time it takes from when a customer says something to when a CEO understands it is way too long because it has to go through all these loops. If you can force each person to do the individual contributor work, it shortens the feedback loop enormously. And so you can get iteration more quickly, which leads to faster growth. So in the startup cycle, I don't think you can be very successful without having people do the IC work. I'm cool with that in the startup cycle. My objection comes when the organization is large enough, because I, I absolutely disagree with you that you can't manage someone unless you're doing the job. If you're a good coach, you can, no question. I mean, I've coached people in 500 segments of the market. To this day, I still don't know what half of them sell, um, but I don't need to. And their results go through the roof. You know, my average client will grow 300 to 800% yeah. in the first year. Because yeah, I'm not saying that there aren't truisms in everything, but I think it's a it's very different to be a consultant than to be a manager, I would say. So my no, understanding no is when you're coming in as a consultant, you're giving them some of the truisms. When you're a manager day to day, I think you can be more effective if you really understand by doing the work that you're assigning people. And I'm not saying you have to do it all day long, but if you're not ever doing it, to your point on like, you know, not not reviewing processes, the fastest way to not review processes is to not be forced to deal with the pain of the process you've created. If you're still in a place where you have to deal with the pain of the process you've created, well, guess what? You're going to go fix your dirty kitchen. If you don't have to deal with it, let somebody else's dirty kitchen. You're not going to go bother fixing it. Um, I don't want to waste too much time on this, but um, the, the one thing I would say 
is I believe managers absolutely have to meet customers, but they shouldn't own the account. The salesperson is captain and the manager is there as crew. Yeah, yeah. In, in a sales, I agree. Crew. I'm not saying for sales specifically, I'm not suggesting the CEO should have a quota or that the CEO should own customers. I'm just suggesting that if the CEO says that the way you should research a customer is by doing X, Y, and Z, well, the CEO should research a customer doing X, Y, and Z at least a few times a quarter. I'm very in favor of that when it comes to producing reports. I think whoever asked for the report should run it first before they ask anyone else to do it, particularly a salesperson. Because if it takes half an hour or an hour to knock out a report, that's 4,000, uh, that's you know, on a 1.2 million target, that's 500 quid. Why would I have someone faffing around doing that instead of making 500 pounds? It's yeah. insane. Yeah, great. Okay, let's just dig in a little bit more into sales culture. In the last 50, 60 years, we've seen a lot of sales culture create the conditions where the customer has begotten, become a forgotten afterthought at the end of a long chain of abuse. And because of that, they are often relatively hostile towards or even uh, you know, just neutral towards the seller, but they're reluctant, they're defensive. And it feels like the culture of sales has forgotten that we exist because of, not in spite of the customer. How do we get people to really believe that their job is to facilitate the best decision for the customer, whether they buy from you or not? How do we get yeah. people to the point where they believe? So, you know, I'm a bit of a, I'll, I'll say I'm a bit of a cynic. So I think some of it has to do with comp plans. And like, that's the cynical answer. And we talk about what, what to do there. And then some of it, you know, the not cynic part of me would say some of it has to do with how you set up the vision of the company and how you explain the phase of the company to the team that you have. So start with the first one on comp plans. You know, I believe strongly in aligning the outcomes for salespeople with the outcomes for customers. So yes. if, if you pay a salesperson upfront for, you know, a booked contract, they're incentivized to make that as big as possible, not to make the customer successful. If you sort of, especially these days, a lot of SaaS companies are consumption-based. If you align the sales payout on the actual revenue that is being generated, meaning the customer is using your product more then you're going to have more likelihood that the, the salesperson is incentivized to make the customer successful. So, you know, think about comp plans, think about what behavior incentivizing. One of my favorite things that I heard about is some companies now offer a perfect, a bonus for a perfect contract. So, you know, perfect contract will be one with no trial, you know, annual terms, no discount, you know, net 30 days, ACH, whatever else are the exactly what you want. And anytime a salesperson does that, and, you know, it, obviously you have to believe that's right for the customer and for you, but you, you actually bonus the, the salesperson in addition to what the comp would be. Fantastic idea. In fact, I was training um, a finance company only today where I suggested that. Um, yeah, so, so I think that's a very nice way to also remind people with incentives. On the other side, from a cultural standpoint, you know, I think if you're a leader at a company, you can never say something enough. So, you know, if the, if the, if the reason why the company exists is because you're trying to build, uh, you know, to go to Mars, use the example SpaceX. If the reason why the company exists is that you're going to Mars, everyone should learn that, you know, the full logic from the mission all the way to their specific role. So if you ask somebody on the line, why are you building this thing? They should be able to say, well, as a company, our mission is to go to Mars. In order to do that, we need to build reusable rockets that are going to enable us to bring down the cost 
because that's what's going to more quickly allow us to send things to Mars. And specifically, my job is to build this one piece on the reusable rocket, and you'll know that I'm successful if you see that uh, you know we hit these tolerance levels within the tests that we do. You need everybody in the organization to be able to understand that. And the way to do it is to, one, set those sorts of goals for everyone, and then make sure you're repeating them again and again and again to the point where if you walk around the floor and ask somebody exactly who's doing one small piece of the puzzle, they can repeat that mission to role uh, logic. So this, again, many of you who've listened to the podcast several times will now be very familiar with this concept of jobs to be done. The job to be done is go to Mars. If you're running the Olympic rowing team, it's to make the boat go faster. If you're running a sales operation, it's to have wowed customers who keep coming back and bring their wealthy friends. Okay, the mistake we make is that we turn it into a transaction. If you look at the growth potential within your accounts and you look more broadly than just the simple organic sales, the potential that you are sat on by looking at the customer's ecosystem, for example, is the customer's customer, their alumni, their JVs, their partners, their ecosystem. You could even be working with competitors of yourself. One of my favorite things is the dead lead swap. But salespeople don't really seem to have a lot of imagination when it comes to being creative about building their book of business. What do we have to do to try and create some more initiative and a better understanding of business acumen? Because I think so many salespeople just fixate on the product and features and functionality, but they don't really understand the context in which people are going to have to live with whatever they buy. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. So I had never thought of it quite that way. I'd say... One thing I think is that I do think about is sort of how commercial are people? Like, what is their commercial sense? So I was lucky. I grew up in a family, from this regard, I was lucky. I grew up in a family that where there were small business owners and where a sort of common dinner table conversation to talk about, you know, basic concepts like buy at a low price, sell at a high price, you know, and that's your margin. And then you need your margin to cover your fixed costs or you're going to go out of business. And so I think like there were some concepts that were very natural to me that, I found when I went to school were not natural to other people because they had never grown up in a household where that was sort of a common understanding. So there's some base commercial instinct that I think is is key there. The other part of being commercial, I think, is you have to get comfortable asking for money. It's not to say that you're asking for something you shouldn't be asking for. You should feel that you're asking for money for a product that is going to be valuable for them. But if you're not comfortable asking for it, you're never going to get it. So, you know, get comfortable there. In terms of other stuff I think about, I would say I see a big distinction between salespeople that are order takers and salespeople that have actually learned the trade. I think in a lot of very popular companies these days, salesperson is effectively an order taker and it never forced them to learn key skills as a salesperson, like framing, like discovery and understanding the customer, like how you create urgency to move a sales process through, like how you build uh, you know, different champions within the organization who are going to help you push this through from their side. And so, you know, I hope that every salesperson goes through some adversity, goes to companies where they have to learn those skills so they can become a better salesperson. You know, without it, yeah, they're, you know, they're going to have a very short sales career because it's not always going to be order taking. Order taking is such a problem and it, it's so easy to do but the amount of money people leave on the table because they uh, fall foul of the lazy why. They hear something and they jump on it and they think, oh, that's it. But more often than not, I, I mean, 
One of the things that frustrates me is that because sellers are under so much pressure, they never spend time really on planning, on research. Now, if you're going into an enterprise sale and you're meeting someone who's running on a billion dollar business, they're responsible for $240,000 a day. Every hour you're in front of them probably costs the business 40 grand in opportunity cost. If you don't turn up prepared, researched, and offering some value, how dare you? I, I, I find that deeply offensive that salespeople think it's okay to just wing it. Yeah, I'll prepared. go even further just as an example that I think people find amusing. When we were in the home services business, and we had this B2B business, we would do the services for the big retailers in the United States. So if you go to Walmart or Wayfair or Costco or Lowe's, and you actually bought you know, a fan and you wanted it installed, it wasn't Lowe's necessarily did the installation. It was likely Angie or one of the Angie's um, contractors that was doing the business. And so we would have to walk into the you know these biggest retailers in the United States and be able to convince them to work with us. And we thought very hard about that time that we had with the CEO of Walmart or the CEO of Wayfair or Lowe's or whatever it may be. And we would, when we like were going to their offices, we would actually film promos just for them. So we would go spend 20 or 30 grand and film a promo showing what it could be like. When they came to our office, we would build out a mock store that looked like their store in our office for again, 20 or 30 grand. Because to your point, their time is valuable. And we needed to also indicate that we were invested in this and that this wasn't like a deck that we made in five minutes, that we actually were really going to be working with them and investing time and money to make this successful. And so do the things that demonstrate that you're not doing something at scale. Like when I get just another email that is clearly exactly the same as what you sent to everyone, it's very easy for me to delete. When it's clear that you've put some time into that email, at the very least, I'm going to respond to you and say, you know what? Tal's not the time. Here's what you know matters to us that you're not covering. And maybe I'll even forward it to the right person internally. So if you show me that you're doing something with, with your time and it, you're taking the time, then I'm going to react to it in a more positive way. Excellent. Alex, this has been really very interesting. Thank you. Uh, we've come to the top of the hour. One question. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back in time and whisper in the ear of the idiot Alex age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him? You know, he'd have probably ignored. Yeah. So one thing I would have said like B2B SaaS, B2B SaaS. So I wish someone 10 years ago had wish, whispered in my ear and said the greatest business model ever invented is B2B SaaS. So for a long time, my co-founder and I worked in consumer businesses. And I think it was very difficult to even know whether you know, you'd have consumers buying your product tomorrow. So it's very hard to predict out the revenue. You couldn't you know, then go and make investments. You didn't know where you were going to be at that next revenue level. Your margin was much lower. So if you made a mistake, it was very hard to fix it and you'd lose a lot of money very quickly. You, Yes, you didn't have to ask for permission, but because you had millions of customers, it was hard to really know what those customers wanted. So you couldn't just go to them and say, what would you like? B2B is the opposite. It's highly predictable revenue, so you can make bigger investments in people and in internal projects. The, the margin is high, so when you make a mistake, you can then go and fix it, and you can then take that money and reinvest it in people and reinvest it in new software for your customers that are going to make them better. And you know, I think you have a business model that is, is like very sustainable for both the customer and for you because 
it allows you as a company to spend the time sitting down with your customers saying, what do you want? Really, how are we going to make you successful? I could never do that with an individual customer buying a cleaning because there wasn't enough money in it. But with a customer that's a bigger customer, you can spend a lot of time with them and you can really you know, say, look, we are going to take two engineers that are only going to build these features that you've asked for. And that's very meaningful to, to the customer and ultimately helps you build a better product. Excellent. Alex Levin, thank you. Thank you very much. How can people get hold of you? They can just email hello at regal.io or go to regal.io. Okay, and you're on LinkedIn, I'm guessing. Yeah, and I'm on LinkedIn, of course. Excellent. Alex, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Tag someone who benefit from uh, this conversation. And if you feel the urge, please leave a review at Apple or whichever uh, podcast uh, platform you use. If you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughsiphonlast.com. And there's a link uh, to book a time if you want to talk about coaching or training. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.